This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Reverse Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on October 20th, 2019, with Alex S. Kohav, Ph.D. Alex Kohav is the editor of and contributor to the recently published Mysticism and Meaning, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. He is an independent scholar based in Boulder, Colorado, and an affiliate faculty member of the Department of Philosophy, Metropolitan State University of Denver. His research has established a new area of scholarly study, Pentateuchal Mysticism and First Temple Ancient Israelite Priestly Initiation Tradition, achieved via Husserl's Noema Noesis Highly distinctions, enabling reverse engineering from the text to the practices that inspired it. Kohav is currently reconstructing, developing ancient Israelite philosophy, that is, the foundational Hebraic metaphysics, epistemology, phenomenology, and ethics of early antiquity Israel. He is the founder of the Institute for Ancient Israelite Spirituality which is a pioneering spiritual and esoteric school that teaches consciousness alteration and transformation based on ancient Israelite practices. Thousands of years ago, these practices were developed by the people of Israel, and they are just as relevant and uniquely transformational now as they were in ancient times. Kohav also researches metaphysics and phenomenology of time, the self, being, and the relation between epistemology and attention. Alex Kohab, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you, and uh, we will begin with our usual first question for guests that we haven't interviewed before, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth, and if any experiences or moments come up, that you could say now, in retrospect, prefigured uh, or harbingers for the direction that your life took, that we'll be talking, and and your work work has taken as exemplified in your book um, that we're going to discuss today. Um, What would those experiences or moments be? This is an incredible question, (laughs) totally (laughs) unanticipated, um, because uh, they are not conducting psychoanalysis, right? <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, I am a fan of psychoanalysis uh, and uh, as well as multiple other disciplines. And uh, in my work, I'm very interdisciplinary. Um, and um, offhand, I wouldn't even know how to answer it um, because I was uh, since early childhood actually equally interested in almost all subjects 
and uh, without sounding um, a little bit a little bit self-congratulatory, but I, but as a matter of fact, I was um, rather equally excelling in most of the disciplines at, at mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was uh, then uh, that's why my my life later life I've had several careers, some continuing concurrently. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so specifically to try to answer your question, you probably had in mind my uh, our current subject for discussion, the book Mysticism and Meaning that just came out in July, of which right. I'm the editor, and um, probably I'm assuming that the gist of your question had something to do with how how did I arrive to be doing that, right? Yes. Precisely. Uh, but uh, but uh, perhaps what comes to mind um, when when I was maybe twenty twenty one, I distinctly recall having uh, the following revelation, even for lack of a better word, that that is uh, later I saw it, of course, as almost entirely Platonian, and I haven't read Plato by that time, um, that something, it went something like this, that if an idea is born in somebody's mind, then that idea is indestructible. It ascends, so to speak, into the heaven, some kind of uh, domain or space, Along with many, with with all other ideas, and it's just there, regardless of whatever happens to the person, something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if you know um, anything about the Platonic notion of ideas or forms, um, it's not the same, of course, because in the case of Plato, <clears throat> they were not just indestructible and somewhere beyond, but but also more real than anything we experience, including us. Uh, and uh, they are sort of like all-powerful living beings and archetypes that he conceived of um, uh, the idea of good, of beauty, uh, that kind of a thing. I, I did not go in that direction in my insight, but that something about the... Uh, everlasting life of an idea, but but it did imply that it had to be occurring to somebody mm-hmm. uh, for it to then ascend and and be there forever. Then also uh, some years later, I read a little bit similar thing uh, from a different angle from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, the French existentialist philosopher who. In his incredible and wonderful book, The Words, the words uh, it's translated and widely available here, um, where uh, it's an autobiographical book where he has the following uh, beautiful uh, thought 
that, and this would be, of course, uh, in my rendering, approximately, uh, you know, sure. not, not attempting to capture his wonderful language um, without looking at the direct quote. Um, he said, when an idea decides to be born, it then, the idea, selects a particular family and a particular uh, a woman in whose, in whose uh, uh, womb it, 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 it kind of situates itself. And, and, and when a baby there is being born, it, uh, that's when the idea is, uh, will be born because that baby, that child will then go on at some point after this idea would arrange for specific difficulties and challenges and uh, all other needed um, needed things to happen for that individual so that it I, this idea can then be born at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you sorry you've asked that question? Uh, well, not in, not know, in the least. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. <laughs> no, but it's, but it's interesting that uh, particularly the book that we're talking about, Mysticism and Meaning, um, you start that book with three first-person narratives, effectively, of people describing... Um, to some extent, it, it varies from person to person, but transformative experiences that uh, you're configuring as elucidations of the mystical. And I guess in some sense, um, what I'm hearing you say is that your relationship to the the, the gateway to the myst- the gateway to the mystical experience uh, seemed to be through a strong resonance uh, with something that you later came to identify with as a, a platonic um, uh, image or a platonic description, that your relationship to idea and the nat- nature of idea and how idea related to the manifest world seems to be a, um, a strong experiential component that might have led you ultimately to have cultivate an interest in this subject matter. Is that is that fair, or am I missing the missing the point? Well, um, you mentioned several very important things, uh, like those three first three chapters of the book uh, by three very different individuals, um, and um, they relate to their personal experiences of things mystical, right? And um, let's see, how how are we calling them in terms of that particular section? Um, Well, I don't have it right now. Maybe I will get it for uh, uh, mysticism's breadth of manifestation. Oh, manifestation. But they are really, you know, experiences rather than theorizing about such things, although... Although uh, all of them, I think all three, then some, somehow uh, offer some kind of interpretation of what they were going through, and it's interesting. And, and it's, it's not, I don't mean to sound like I'm plugging it in, but I have another edited book on mysticism. is will appear early, uh, early in 2020. 
um, everything is uh, is ready to go, uh, except I'm revising my own introduction there, including I think I will be up uh, suggesting to the publisher, another academic publisher, um, to to have the following title: Mysticism and Experience, mm. and the subtitle: Twenty uh, First Century uh, Approaches. Uh, and that's the reason I'm mentioning it now because of, of the word experience. Yeah. And my introduction uh, is uh, is what I'm dealing with right now uh, in terms of how this notion, uh, all important notion, has been uh, seen and is being seen and debated and and so forth. So these three individuals in the first three chapters, that's what they are presenting. They're they are attempting to put it in words, often, um, you know, uh, in a process that is that is far from easy. It's extremely difficult and and perhaps even painful. In the case of, I think Gregory Nixon in particular, I I, I think I'm mentioning in my preface uh, to that book uh, about Gregory Nixon that uh, that his chapter is a courageous one. Yes, and it is courageous precisely. In that, uh, you know, he he goes where uh, most of us perhaps wouldn't want to go in terms of revealing everything uh, uh, that happened and and the thoughts and the feelings and and so forth, uh, extremely intimate stuff. Um, and and so, um, Stuart, what was exactly the question? Well, I, I... Uh, or Rob. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that this is this is Stuart. That um, the, the question was, uh, in one sense, to get, understand better how you came to have such an appreciation or focus on the subject matter of mysticism. Was it through a transformatory first-person experience, like these uh, writers describe, or was it through? Um, uh, a different kind of connection at the idea level to the meaning and the power. Well, let me let me even add to this Stuart's question, which is I'm wondering if this experience that you described in your early 20s that you described a moment ago might qualify as in your in your view as a mystical experience. You know, this is uh, both of you asked uh, very fascinating and 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 I would say crucial questions. Um, and so don't let me forget uh, each of the parts because they Fair are enough. they are uh, very very important and I I I may uh, uh, be delving into one or the other at the expense of that and I don't want to do that. Um, so perhaps I'll start with the, with the, with Rob's uh, question first. Uh, I was. Uh, I'm just uh, currently I'm, I'm teaching a course uh, in the introductory philosophy that that each time I'm picking uh, two or three different philosophers to teach to keep myself interested. And in this semester, one of them was uh, the French philosopher Henry Bergson, mm-hmm. um, early 20th century. Uh, he was probably the most famous philosopher at the time. Um, and one of the key things about him and his key input into philosophy is 
the notion of um, intuition. Um, basically, to put it in, in, a, in one sentence, he, his insight, his deepest insight is that, and of course in my words, that each philosopher, genuine philosopher, by that, by that he and I would mean not just somebody who teaches or writes about philosophy, no matter how, um, how well or on a higher level, but rather who makes philosophy. And making philosophy, or who is a philosopher, means uh, presenting um, his or her own very unique perspective on something, something that only that philosophy gives us. Mm-hmm. And and so <clears throat> his <clears throat> particular input <clears throat> into this uh, overall discussion, the great discussion of philosophy, is that um, uh, that scientists, as the scientific method, follows the commonsensical, namely that we observe the world, we collect data, our sensory data, and, uh, and then out of that we, we, we try to formulate some kind of unity. Of course, in the, in the case of scientists as opposed to regular people, uh, it's, it's far more sophisticated, but the, the method is the same. Well, Bergson says that a philosopher starts from unity, and the flash of his own particular intuition, and only one intuition, he says, every great philosopher has only one great intuition, which then dominates his or her work and life. And from that moment on, from that unity, uh, he then uh, analyzes and, and, and desperately tries to express it somehow. Now, when, when you asked me, uh, Rob, um, in your part of the question, whether that, that insight that I've had in my early 20s about the ideas, the indestructibility of genuine ideas, whether it's mystical or philosophical, um, I, <laughs> well, uh, Plato is often seen uh, also as uh, being a mystic, mm-hmm. uh, not just a philosopher. He's the father of Western philosophy. Uh, and, of course, his famous uh, pupil Aristotle went, uh, went a different way. But, but really, um, uh, clearly to me, looking back, that was a genuinely philosophical intuition. Okay. Um, and perhaps later on in our discussion, when we'll be talking more about specifically mystical, maybe we will hit jointly upon the distinction uh, that maybe needs to be drawn, or maybe not. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, between uh, a mystical insight versus a philosophical intuition in the, in the manner of Bergson. Okay. But uh, but uh, going back to what Stuart asked 
earlier in that question um, is uh, how I myself, whether I had, uh, at least that's how I remember the question, whether I had my own mystical, specifically mystical experiences and, and so forth. Now, um, in, uh, in my um, late 20s, 30s, I was a young single guy in New York City. Um, I'm actually, and, and me and my wife, we are, I often uh, introduce myself here in Colorado as a refugee from New York. <laughs> so we escaped uh, in 1998, like 21 years ago. Um, but in those days, I remember attending uh, a great number of different um, sort of retreats or workshops from of, of all kinds, whether they were Taoist, um, um, of uh, you know uh, Kabbalistic, uh, of a number of varieties. Uh, just right now, the names don't. But you can perhaps you can help me with some other versions that there could have been. Zen, perhaps. Um, yeah, um, certainly Buddhism would be big in New York at that time. Yeah, Buddhism and uh, also uh, things like Kundalini Yoga. Uh, yeah. Uh, there we go. You know, and and so forth, which later on, of course, was extremely helpful for me to to being able to navigate things and distinguish the, the distinguishing or as as philosophers like to use this not very um, politically correct term these days to discriminate in the original usage of the word discriminate is is you know the mind needs to distinguish things and that's what probably uh, Berkson meant when uh, after the unity and, and the intuition of philosopher proceeds to analysis. Whereas yeah. the scientist starts with the analysis, uh, well, he gathers, he gathers data and then analyzes, hoping to arrive at unity. Well, and the, and the philosopher does, does it in reverse. From unity, then he analyzes. And how is analysis being done is to distinguish, to discriminate between uh, notions and uh, and the meanings of the words and and experiences and everything right so discrimination is a big thing and so uh, that's what uh, that's what I've been doing uh, and was interested and until I somehow um, through a variety of sources that you know, it's some kind of in, intuitive, perhaps, searching. When one is searching for something, doesn't know exactly what it is. I don't mm -hmm. want to use big words like the truth or or uh, the, 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 the real, the, 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 the proper way for me. Um, one searches, and, and so I stumbled on this or that, I was uh, along the way. I was obviously prepared for certain things. One of the big things is that how to recognize when when you see something extremely valuable. Often, um, it's like I think in Goethe's uh, Faust, the um, the hero doesn't recognize right away what is being 
offered uh, things. That little thing, so that little thing is it. Um, so recognition or even noticing something, uh, that's what you're being sensitized along your way, and, and I was, to recognize something that, that, that I found fell into my hands. And, uh, and, uh, and I, uh, decided to, to try. I, it, 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 almost nothing happens in a vacuum, of course. Uh, I'm being also a, a rather overly intellectual person, kind of thinking always and questioning. So, for example, um, as I, I've read throughout uh, the years, uh, from time to time, when I've read, uh, uh, the five books of Moses in the in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, known in, in scholarship as the Pentateuch, right? Or in Jewish tradition, it's called the Torah, and the Torah is the teaching, the meaning of the word Torah, the teaching. Uh, I was uh, puzzled by a great number of things, uh, which I discovered that most people, the, the millions and millions and uh, people who have read it and studied it. They hardly troubled themselves with because they just moved on, and and essentially for two reasons, they 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 just compel were compelled to move on without uh, dwelling too much on things. A because the narratives are, as we know, uh, Harold Bloom, who just passed away, the foremost or preeminent literary critic, he compared the power of the narratives. Uh, of the of the Pentateuch, especially to Shakespeare, which for him was the highest uh, possible literary achievement. So he felt it from that level. And indeed, the narratives are such that you just want to move on and see what, and what's next and what's next and so forth. Very powerful, very vivid. Um, but there's another reason why uh, a reader, a typical reader, would be uh, compelled to move on. And namely that usually these uh, these moments that I might be talking about in a minute uh, that gave me pause that I just said why uh, what's going on there uh, they are pretty much uh, uh, people uh, normally uh, would would be hard pressed hard pressed to find answers to them to understand why because they are as I later on. Uh, um, you know, interpreted it, they are deliberately uh, uh, created, formulated in a way that I, uh, to some extent, comparable to um, to what is called in uh, in Zen Buddhism, um, well, what is it called? Um, koan. Koan, exactly. Yeah. It's 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 similar and it's very different. Uh, the koan in, in Zen Buddhism is not supposed to have a meaningful answer. It's supposed to put you in a uh, state of mind that would, would, would kind of draw you away from your logical linear thinking, such mm-hmm. as, for example, you heard that, that uh, an example is given often, uh, one hand clapping, right? Uh, maybe you heard it. So uh, it's hard to imagine how could one hand clapping occur. That's exactly the point. Uh, well, the Hebrew Korans that I later called them in in the text of the Pentateuch, 
They are different only in a sense that they are designed not only to have such an effect, but also to offer a meaning, unlike in Zen Quran. There is a meaning, but it's not uh, the way one expects it to be. So, for example, right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, uh, the, the God that is portrayed there, uh, and, and according to Bloom, well, God is a, is a wonderful character. It's a char- literary character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, quite simply, why would God prohibit Adam and Eve, their prototypical proto-humans, archetypal humans, prohibit on the pain of death to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's like, uh, you know, uh, if you, if one attends any, any sermon by uh, any rabbi, any minister, uh, imam, of, of any sort, Typically, that is will be 90%, if not 100% of their message. They'll be talking about what is good and what is evil or bad. Do this, don't do that, right? This is, as I would put it, uh, it's uh, bread and butter of their, that's how they earn their, you know, compensation. Yet here, right there, the beginning, the Hebrew God uh, seems to be doing something incredible. Do not try to eat, in other words, do not try to go there where the question is what is good and what is evil. I even began to call it as the 11th commandment, the epistemic mm-hmm. commandment about knowledge. And I have not found anywhere about there are all kinds of uh, explanations, but they were not satisfactory. They didn't deal with the issue. They don't deal usually with the question of why. And to me, so I had certain presuppositions that was dealing with, with some such. And there are, there are a number of such aporias or, or, um, how did we call it, uh, the Zen Buddhist term? Koan. Or koans like that, the Hebrew koans. Uh, and, 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 and then later on I discovered that one of my abilities that I possessed uh, and continue to possess is something I didn't know that, that I have that and that it's very precious. Uh, but I have it somehow, naturally. Uh, and that is what the philosopher Wittgenstein said at some point, that in the philosophical race, you know, when they're running, uh, the one who is, this is in my wording, the one who is able to run, who is able to run the slowest, wins. Now, in the normal race in the Olympics and championships, one who's run the fastest wins, right? Yeah. In philosophy, says with this time, if you are able 
to run the slowest, well, what the, the, the meaning here is as follows, is that most of us, including most of philosophers, unlike the truly great ones, maybe that's the implication here, what, you know, it's painful for us, not for, for us human beings, um, to hold something in our heads, in our minds, undecided. We just need to say, well, that's what it is, and that's it, enough of that. Uh, and this is, it's painful probably, it's psychologically painful because through evolutionary forces, often our lives depended on quickly coming to, you know, the, to some decision rather than deliberating, you know, for hours, for weeks, for months, for years, or all of the, of the, of the entire life. Well, certain big questions, those philosophers who turns out to be the greatest are the ones who are not deciding not deciding for years or decades because it, 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 they cannot decide and it tortures them too but they are able to hold it as I would say in suspension in their heads undecided mm-hmm. well it turned out that uh, I possess that ability that not to decide uh, for instance this this story in the Garden of Eden, well, uh, what is exactly, you know, that, what is it? Uh, I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense, right? In fact, on the face of it, it was outrageous. Moreover, the story, even with the serpent there, uh, saying that God has his own plans against you people, that he doesn't want you to become as God's, so it even even added to it to the sense of of outrageousness and and, and some kind of uh, problem for the humans. Uh, and uh, but but I, I've I've uh, had several premises as I later discovered. Often we come to some situations having either biases or premises or unconscious, um, and. And it's good for one to know it, if one can, what one brings to it. In my case, um, I, I never assumed that, A, that God could be devious, like in some, uh, some types of religious uh, uh, traditions. Uh, that's what uh, the conclusion is from that, for example, from that story. Or, or that, uh, you know, I assumed subconsciously, unconsciously that, uh, that it is a true thing. It's just that I need to understand what, what, what the message there is. Right. And to, it turned out to be that that's exactly the, um, the intent of those who wrote that was. That somebody would come to it would not say, oh, what a gibberish or what, what an outrageous kind of thing or this or that, but rather would say, what is the meaning? What are they trying to tell me? Why? Um, and, and so all of that was percolating throughout the years in my head was the suspension. Mm-hmm. And I was getting uh, various uh, types of, well, experiences, attending various groups and so forth. Um, by the way, by my earliest education, I uh, became um, uh, an electrochemical engineer, huh? ah. um, you know, uh, which, which uh, played uh, some role. It was one of my careers that became um, an executive even in some major, major companies. 
so I told you I've had, had several careers, right? Um, but, but obviously, uh, and I was interested in physics at the time, but, but, but I uh, realized that it's more of a philosophical, and later on, uh, also uh, of a mystical bent. And so, finally, I'm coming to the point of the question that when, when I um, uh, in New York was uh, uh, has discovered some rather innocuous kind of information. And then decided to try something uh, from that, and um, and basically it 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 turned out to be that there were uh, the elements of what I later developed uh, more, having experienced much of it, into what I later uh, began to see as the ancient Israelite uh, mystical initiatory tradition extremely different, very different from anything that that is known now what came later as a number of uh, so-called uh, Jewish mystical and Kabbalistic um, schools. It was rather I, I, I have assumed and I'm assuming now that this was the tradition of the priests of the temple, the first temple mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it originates from some such charismatic figure as Moses has been portrayed, whether, you know, they, had, they very well could have been, just like there was a Buddha and, uh, and you know, some, some key founder. Um, but that uh, the priest then... Uh, have practiced this uh, tradition and developed a whole system uh, and so forth. Now, I then, uh, so I've, I've had uh, extremely powerful ex- mystical experiences of that nature. Hmm. And, and, and if you're interested, uh, in a bit we can talk about what specifically their nature was and how different, how similar it may have been to other traditions, mm-hmm. and so forth. But but then, years, years later, when I was able to to think about what I've experienced in, in words, in a discursive manner, and, and I, I was realizing that nobody knows about it. And that I needed to, but also wanted to, uh, to to express it. Now, one of my other concurrent careers, which continues, is that I'm also a visual artist. Hmm. And at the time of my having tried that system and going through these extremely intense transformational experiences, I was in East Hampton, New York. Uh, so for the end of Long Island, if you guys know where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had a studio there. Um, I was for a whole year, which was what, uh, mid-1980s, before the Internet, but I did something unthinkable in, uh, for a, 
a person in the United States, I turned off my phone for an entire year. It would be really unthinkable to the new generation. Exactly. And, and, and I, I lived in the midst of a gorgeous nature. Water was everywhere, trees, the sky, and uh, actually uh, very in a close vicinity to studios of uh, other uh, current at the time and or former great artists like Jackson Pollock, Mm-hmm. Uh, who was dead by then, but it just was a sort of, you know, uh, a minute driving, you know, almost walking distance, and a few other, one of them uh, whom I uh, was in touch with, um, uh, but, so I was painting, and also mm-hmm. simultaneously undergoing through these experiences, and in my painting, I was also attempting already to express some of the things, like, for instance, perhaps this title would give you uh, some inkling, uh, such as a, a, some enor- enormous canvases. One was the year of the I and the not I. Mm-hmm. Or another one, the year of shadows, or something else, or whispers of emptiness, something like that. Mm-hmm. And a whole series of limitless light um, uh, paintings and, 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 and so forth. But, but it took almost a decade for me to, to be able to think of it discursively in words, uh, what may have happened. Mm. And, uh, and it is at that point, I apologize, I'm not letting you to put in a word, not deliberate. This is, not deliberate, a, this, this is quite fascinating, you need not apologize. And, and then at some point it occurred to me that I would like to try to present what I've experienced in a, not simply in a, in a scholarly language, but rather, but, but more importantly, uh, in a scholarly setting. And, and, and that's when I, I found and went ahead, uh, uh, became a doctoral student, meaning uh, a PhD program, an accredited program um, uh, at the Union Institute out of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I discovered later that in Cincinnati they have a uh, liking uh, toward the word union. There are a number of institutions there with the word union for some reason. <laughs> yeah. This was Union Institute and University, and uh, they offered an interdisciplinary program uh, and PhD and um, and and I, for six and a half years I've been doing it. Most of others in, in such programs. In fact, I remember the young woman uh, who whom I met in Boulder, um, who told me about this program. She was very proud that she got her PhD like in two and a half years. Um, <laughs> and and uh, now the reason I it took that long because I. I relished that status of a, a doctoral researcher. It was uh, an unbelievable time. And and so, as a result, well, I um, my dissertation focused on, on the following, on a very simple, well, simple to formulate thesis that there is in the Pentateuch um, 
uh, a concealed uh, layer of meaning, concealed not in the way we normally think of being concealed, but rather it's in front of our eyes, but it needs a certain recognition. And I, I, um, the dissertation was, uh, I was indulged by my committee, which has been changing throughout. It was an interdisciplinary committee that normally a dissertation is like 150 pages, uh, maybe, maybe 175. In my case, it was almost a thousand pages with with the, with, with the references cited, references more than 65 pages. And, uh, uh, and, and the reason for that is that it has been published since. It's called the SOD hypothesis, mm-hmm. a very long subtitle. Um, there, but the SOD is the Hebrew for secret. And, um, it's actually a long-standing notion that um, it has both uh, uh, Jewish and Christian um, 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 both in Jewish and Christian sources there are these four notions of biblical interpretation so like uh, literal, allegorical you know uh, um interpretive, and finally, thought or secret. And the Christian is a very similar, slightly different, but similar uh, type of distinction. Well, what I've discovered uh, that in, 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 in Kabbalah, or, or in all of their versions, uh, there are some rudiments of understanding it, but primarily they don't, uh, they know that there is such a thought, but what is it they don't know. Yeah. And and so what what I what I attempted to do I think conclusively uh, and the reason that that setting a PhD program was important for me not only um, to do it let's say properly scholarly which mm-hmm. means something but also to be seen as such that it's not somebody who just somewhere in the woods writes uh, something and uh, and. Uh, as it is, I'm, I'm sometimes uh, I'm sometimes being dismissed uh, in certain circles in Jewish studies that, well, it's my my midrash, if you know the meaning of the word. In other words, it's my interpretation. Well, no, I, 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 that's not what I aspired to at all. And that's not what I, I think achieved conclusively through scholarly means, namely that it's not my interpretation, but that there is something objectively there. And what's something there is that uh, there's a double, um, a dual channel, I called it, uh, from cognitive studies. There is such a notion of dual channel. There's a main channel, what everybody sees, there is another channel in parallel. And, uh, well, that has been, I've, I've, uh, I was, uh, received my PhD degree in 2011. Uh, and uh, well, the book we are talking about uh, has been put together uh, in the intervening years, as well as the other book that I mentioned that is coming out. In fact, I 
my plan was because the responses were so good uh, from uh, interested participants. Some of them are very prominent people from around mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. and I I put it together as a one big volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Based on my dissertation, you might get the idea that I like things big. Um, yeah. um, and so they had like more uh, more than 26 <laughs> chapters. And finally, when I saw that most uh, publishers um, didn't go, didn't want to go, uh, oops, um, let's see. I think, okay, I'm back. Didn't want to go for such a large volume, so I divided it now into two I mean, they are related in the subject, but they are separate yeah. books. Okay. Well, I, I, as a as a bookseller uh, with a spiritual and religious bookstore, I can understand what what the publishers were saying to you <laughs> well, <laughs> in terms of selling books. It, it's, it's nice to have multiple volumes. So, right. But <clears throat> well, speaking of the um, of uh, the the book in question here. I know that you allude to the uh, uh, SOD hypothesis. Um, it's actually a fascinating conversation for us because, um, you know, we, we were talking before we started recording about our involvement in the Gurdjieff work. And in the Gurdjieff work, of course, uh, George Gurdjieff wrote this monumental volume called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. And in that volume, it, it really is like a thousand-page allegory or series of allegories that read, you can read it at the level of the literal level, in which case it seems like gibberish, uh, but you can also read it at the allegorical level, which means that um, we have a friend that has written a number of books on this topic that he's describing the process that you're describing, which is you have to go slow. In other words, you have to take every word that you don't understand and decompose it into the parts to understand what Gurdjieff may have been intending because he explicitly says that he's encoding an esoteric teaching in this this work. But the practice really to relate to it is is one of going extremely slowly and not doing what the mechanical mind would naturally do, which is to skip ahead. If I don't know something, then I'm just going to assume I know and go ahead which is what most people do. You, you are saying that Gurdjieff also uses allegories and, and some uh, to code, so to speak, yes. uh, the message. And, and I'm not, uh, I don't know, uh, I, I, I'm um, imagining he had to do it. Uh, a lot of times people don't understand the notion of code and secrecy and that kind of a thing. Uh, in the case of ancient Israelite mystical initiatory tradition that we spoke about uh, before, mm-hmm. um, the reason uh, there, there's twofold. Uh, it's not that they wanted to hide anything; it's that it's impossible to uh, to express it. Remember, I was talking about how to express even what I was experiencing before the difficulty and. We have right. the notion of um, ineffability. The things often are ineffable, inexpressible in words. And and so, well, the, uh, my assumption is that the people who wanted to transmit that transmission, uh, that tradition, 
They had to resort to various uh, methods of symbolization, allegorization, and other methods, um, uh, so that's out of necessity. On the other hand, if I would, would, would bring it down to a set of sentences, uh, the import, the content of that tradition, and I would tell anybody, would, here you go, here, here is, uh, everything is written in a manual, straightforwardly, um, they would not understand the thing. Right. It, it's like, uh, why? What's going so, so the mind uh, of a would-be seeker who wants to take part in it, who wants to understand, has to be such that is able to untangle this. Right. Uh, you see what I mean? So the code there, while it, it's, it's not in some box that you have to find and open it and there you have it. Uh, it's all open. Uh, and, and one would say, and I'm sure some philosophers had this view as well, that looking around the world and the, and the incredible wealth of experiences that we have, well, everything is encoded there too, and yet it's, it's there available. And most people go through through it, and 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 they have their own sense of reality. Uh, or by comparison, you can see how, for instance, some pets, dogs, and and cats, and so forth, they have their own limited sense of reality, not the same as most humans have. And among humans, there are tremendous differences, right? Right. Uh, and and so. In the same way, things are encoded, but not deliberately. Does nature deliberately, uh, reality wants to hide it from us? It's right there. Right. But you have to be, go ahead. You have to be on a certain level to be able to recognize it and read it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I was just going to say that that's, that's certainly how I understand the distinction between an esoteric teaching and an exoteric teaching. Uh, not so much because the esoteric teaching is intended to privilege the knowledge holders, but more because a certain kind of preparation is necessary if one is going to be able to partake of a experience of a different category than is what is normally served up by the ordinary mind. And that takes a preparation. That takes a practice and a work. And it's not something that can be transmitted directly by uh, a description, a description can certainly inspire, but a, a, a description can't create. What, what's necessary is more of an injunctive approach where one engages in practices that have the possibility of taking one or creating the conditions by which one can be transported out of that ordinary uh, mental consciousness. Would you, do you agree with it? Absolutely. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Alex S. Kohoff, Ph.D. Alex Kohoff is the editor of and contributor to the recently published Mysticism and Meaning, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. He is an independent scholar based in Boulder, Colorado, and an affiliate faculty member at the Department of Philosophy, Metropolitan State University of Denver. He is the founder of the Institute for Ancient Israelite Spirituality 
which is a pioneering spiritual and esoteric school that teaches consciousness alteration and transformation based on ancient Israelite practices. Kohav also researches metaphysics and phenomenology of time, the self, being, and the relation between epistemology and attention. We'll be right back. Back to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Alex S. Kohoff, Ph.D. Alex Kohoff is the editor of and contributor to the recently published Mysticism and Meaning, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. He is an independent scholar based in Boulder, Colorado, and an affiliate faculty member at the Department of Philosophy, Metropolitan State University of Denver. He is the founder of the Institute for Ancient Israelite Spirituality, which is a pioneering spiritual and esoteric school that teaches consciousness alteration and transformation based on ancient Israelite practices. Kohav also researches metaphysics and phenomenology of time, the self, being, and the relation between epistemology and attention. But in addition to the difficulties you just described in terms of comprehension, there's also something that, see, our minds um, uh, have, uh, have, uh, have biologically um, created barriers to certain realities that if, 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 if they wouldn't be there, uh, we couldn't live almost. It's, it's like uh, if we would hear everything that's um, possible, that is possible to hear, know everything, uh, and so forth, you know, the world is overwhelming and we can go yeah. crazy. Uh, and so one needs that kind of a preparation as well for, for, for those awesome experiences and also, along with it, uh, little by little, in a certain prescribed way, and each tradition has their own ways, of getting rid, at least, of some of those barriers, because otherwise you will never have those experiences. Right. Right? That's right. So, um, you know, there are various uh, approaches in, in the different chapters in Mysticism and Meaning. Um that address this and and one of the things that i think is, is helpful is the brian lancaster uh piece right. because he describes um how you know he creates a model to describe precisely how to think about the steps that are necessary to be able to create the mind as a fertile ground for these meanings and interpretations and understandings and wisdom to to find a place to lodge now, and to course, be available right but of course uh i uh, i'm sure you you agree that not all experiences including not all mystical experiences are of the same kind of course they are their methods are different and the results are different 
And by results, you know, for starters, you know, the, um, there are so-called theistic experiences versus non-theistic, uh, where uh, there is no uh, involvement of a God mm -hmm. figure. But, uh, and, or, or often, uh, a, still there is a debate about so-called unitive experiences. Well, the, the tradition that, uh, that I've uh, discovered, of ancient Israel tradition, it's not a unitive type, um, because um, um, it, it, if you are familiar with with the notion of, um, developed by the German theologian uh, in the 19th century, Rudolf Otto, in his book, The Idea of the Holy, and he is describing very, very useful um, notions of a theistic mysticism where he, he calls it mysterium tremendum mm -hmm. and another term is the holy other, completely other. Well, if it's completely other, then how can it be unified? With right. It? You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> yeah, I do. The whole I... idea that... So, 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 in, so in, in, in this type of experience, unlike in others, and and I, I hope you understand that I, I need to maybe emphasize early on, just in case, that I'm not knocking any any other tradition. What I'm after, as as a as a as a thinker and as a philosopher, to is to distinguish, uh, to understand right. what are the differences, right? And sure. there are profound differences. Uh, and so, um, so when you talk about mysterium tremendum, the, the Latin terms themselves indicate something uh, awesome, but also awful. So if in the presence of such power, mm -hmm. you see, uh, it, it would quash uh, any human being who is not prepared properly for that. Also, one has to have a tradition that leads one to that. And, and, and that is exactly the ancient Israelite tradition. Um, Unlike, you know, in most other um, later Kabbalistic or, or Jewish uh, mystical traditions uh, and so forth, uh, the, the aim is, uh, is, is not formulated that, that way at all. Yeah. Well, Namely, you, yes. I, just gonna, I was just going to ask then, uh, the, in one sense, in some, some of the descriptions in the book, there is a discussion about the unitative experience where one feels a identity or a, uh, a, a sameness of one, the nature of one's being with the beingness of everything around. And it seems like the gateway to those experiences, though, is the uh, cessation of the separate mind or the separate identity or the ego as a dominant factor in the experiential component. And I guess the, I guess the question I had for you in terms of the experience of this extreme otherness is: Does it follow that same pattern that the preparation, uh, as you uh, understand it in the uh, ancient Israelite tradition, is it a preparation of the cessation of the ego, such that one can be present to a larger dimension of being, or is there really a Separation—that's that's, that's a, a a a a difference. 
like a dualistic difference between the experiencer and that which is being experienced. Excellent, excellent, profound question. Right on the button. Um, in the case of ancient Israelite uh, mysticism, uh, something else is happening. Rather than uh, the very opposite, rather than the idea being of elimination of the ego, egoic consciousness, and submersion into into a greater one. What is happening is that our normal state of consciousness is seen as smallness, small, like restricted consciousness. Mm-hmm. Whereas when what is happening then, as you start. That's for the lack of a better word, uh, having a beginning a relationship with this mysterious tremendum. And I say beginning, uh, opening up or to the, even the possibility. <laughs> and then so, uh, uh, let alone when, when you have a full fledged, uh, I, I call it interscholar relationship because of the different scales. So what happens because it's interscholar, then then your limited, restricted consciousness, well, you've heard the term, expanded consciousness. And and your ego, yourself, is becoming uh, much larger to an incredible degree than what it was before. It can never, of course, reach the scale of, of the Mysterium Tremendum. But because it's a relationship, you are now sort of stepping up to the plate to the maximum you can, right? Now, you see how different it is mm-hmm. and the experience? And um, here is the thing. One, when this happens, one inevitably feels the incredibly increased powers of all sorts. You are much larger, your comprehension and abilities, and therefore it's almost inevitable that one, there is a temptation, a very serious one, it's even stronger word needed than temptation, you, 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 you feel yourself a god, mm-hmm. and, or have this messianic uh, sense of the Messiah. And that is exactly some other uh, parts of the narrative uh, in the Garden of Eden is about. Mm-hmm. When, because, uh, you see, uh, the question is, has God lied, uh, for example, that, uh, that you will die and Adam and Eve don't die on the face of it? Of course, they die to certain possibilities. You see, mm-hmm. right there you have to understand it. Mm-hmm. But, is is uh, did the serpent lie? Also didn't lie, because indeed the question is when you uh, when you have well and the serpent and this is a nice lead into uh, some other aspect of this and it's uh, and the, and the connection that I found between uh, the ancient Israelite mystical tradition and the Kundalini yogic tradition. Because and, and there there is the serpent goddess, mm-hmm. right? Well, 
would you know it? In the Garden of Eden, the key protagonist there is the serpent. Now, it's not a mere coincidence. Um, and what is happening is that when one has the rising of the Kundalini energy, considered as goddess in that tradition, um, throughout one's, through one's spine, upwards, um, that's when, uh, and you know, when it achieves the, uh, reaches the crown chakra and you, you know, you achieve nirvana and, uh, and the powers and so forth. Well, we are, these two traditions uh, speak about, refer to the basic biological reality of human beings, whether one is a Hindu or a Jew uh, in this uh, case, we are the same biological beings, right? And it's a, it's a biological thing that is happening. But the consequences are such that in both cases, the, the Hebrew traditions realizes the danger there. You will be as God. Will you take yourself to be a God? Mm. That's the question. In the Hindu tradition of Kundalini Yoga, the way, and I've experienced some of it, went through some of these, uh, um, uh, workshops and so forth. Obviously, not not very closely. I, I didn't become a full-fledged devotee, but enough to understand that this is not only not being discouraged there, but rather actually it's venerated. The the, the, the serpent itself is considered to be not just an energy but a goddess. So you can tell, and. And why is the Hebrew tradition so careful about it? So, uh, uh, to the point that, you know, uh, uh, about this process. Because when one uh, is taking himself uh, seriously as, as a god, uh, one can cause a lot of, a lot of serious damage. Mm-hmm. Not just to himself, but to other human beings, uh, and and that's why, by the way, uh, Moses, unlike some other founders of other religions, uh, it's not conceivable that in, in the entire in the entirety of Jewish tradition of him being worshipped. That is being said all the time that as great as he was, he is just a servant of God, and God is to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. So that is the meaning, uh, the context of this thing. And, 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 and let's see, did I respond to what you were saying, uh, Stuart? Well, you, 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 you did uh, in, in the sense that you're describing a mystical experience that is not, is not entirely the cessation of the self, but it's more like the transformation of the self. Uh, there's still a selfness. There's still a, a, a self-awareness. No, 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 Stuart, not just not entirely and still, and not just still. Drop those words. On the contrary, your self is being, not only you reach yourself, but the self is enlarged to an incredible degree. It, so, but it, like, like many things in life, it's a two, two-sided uh, sword, or what's the word, um, it's 
it, it's like a nuclear energy it could be for good or for bad. So right. you are now sort of a, a, a nuclear bomb of sorts, uh, nuclear energy at that point. You are extremely powerful, but if you are seeing yourself as God, that's a problem. If you are, uh, if you're understanding properly prepared with a proper tradition that pays attention to this, as well as not just to how to get there, but what to make out of it properly, in this sense properly, meaning, yes, yes, you are big and powerful, but you are not a god. There is God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's not that you still have that. You have it to an incredible degree, more than ever before. You know, and by the way, part of the problem of those who went through something like this, uh, in, in, in then trying to relate it to, to others, including in a discursive language, let alone scholarly, is that in that heightened, expanded state of mind, um, you operate, you think, uh, not in a linear, uh, manner. Not in a commonsensical uh, manner that Berkson said that a lot of scientists are following, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, commonsensical, in- inferential method and so forth. No. Uh, you are in a different state of mind, and in that state of mind, in, uh, you're experiencing things and know things, but, but in order to then, uh, to be able to uh, write about it, you have to go back to the more to the, your restrictive, uh, lower, lesser uh, self. Well, let me then. Yes, I was, I was going to say, let me then ask you because you you uh, made reference to this year in your life in the East Hampton area um, when you were both creating art and ex- having mystical experiences, and the art was at least to some extent, I don't know, you can clarify that, um, an expression or, or an attempt to express some of, some of what you were, uh, these mystical experiences that you were accessing. So, so first I'd like, uh, you know, I, I want to invite you to, to use le- discursive language to talk a little bit about what that, how that was arising for you. But second, I want to ask, about this artistic expression that you are having. Some people, some, uh, we have a, we have a, a teacher in, a friend, so a teacher in the Tibetan, uh, Buddhist spiritual tradition who has, who has some, uh, he wouldn't call artists teachers themselves, but they had, they often access something that is that comes from that nonlinear place that you were you, that you were just referencing, and so I'm wondering about this this um, experience that you described for yourself in this particular year when you were creating visual art. It sounds like in paint in paintings, its reference its its relationship to um, the mystical engagement that you um, uh, were um, pursuing, presumably pursuing, um, or maybe it was just a bolt of lightning that you didn't invite into your life. I don't know, but I'm interested to know. So so tell us about that that process, if you will. 
Well, first of all, it, it wasn't just one year. It was more like uh, five or six years uh, altogether, that period. Okay. Uh, it's just for one year, I had my phone unplugged. And, uh, oh, oh, sorry, that, sorry. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that helped, that helped maybe was one of the things, as you know, often uh, would be mystic needs to be kind of, uh, you know, through various means to to isolate himself from the world because the world tends to intrude in a way that that uh, that that you know the way the world does and 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 so um, so you need to to kind of isolate yourself um, uh, and uh, and that's what I instinctively did. I just didn't want somebody calling me and, and I have to answer questions and mm-hmm. or or whatever uh, you know so. Um, but it was a longer period, and and I already went to East Hampton uh, to begin with, uh, and had a studio built uh, and so forth there because I went there as an artist. Mm-hmm. But but uh, as it was happening, as I was going through these mystical experiences, I decided I didn't decide. All right, I, I, it just was was obvious to me that that i will be, what i'm what i'm experiencing i'm going to be trying to somehow to uh, to 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 express to be one i wasn't trying to hopefully not to illustrate the process but mm-hmm. in a more genuine deeper way do that process in art mm-hmm. in parallel uh, mm-hmm. some things are happening in me but things were happening in the art I was started to produce. Okay. And and by the way, uh, because uh, um, about a year ago, um, uh, a, a well-known um, both critic, art critic, and and a curator, and he's also a philosopher. And actually, uh, it's interesting enough, he's one of the contributors to this volume. Oh yeah, um, which one? Ori, Ori Z. Soltis. Okay. Uh, he writes here moral philosophy. In the other volume, he's also there, and uh, he there writes more about artists uh, in terms of the mystical. Well, he's a well-known uh, curator and uh, and art critic. Well, he wrote a, a monograph on my art, hmm. Hmm. and it's not out yet. It should be soon, and if you want to, I will be pleased to send it to you, and maybe if you will feel like it, we will have a separate discussion. Oh, that'd be great. That. I would, I would very much like. I, 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 I'll confess to having a, a considerable curiosity to actually looking at the art as well, not just talking about it. And 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 you will see, I think, as Ori Ori did, that there is a definite connection between me as a mystic, as a philosopher, and also I'm also a poet, in addition to everything else, but as an artist as well. And mm-hmm. that it's all about uh, uh, the issues of consciousness, transformation, and so forth. So so they are, you know, I'm in that sense, it's just different avenues of, uh, hopefully not, I don't like the word expression, only because um, I was doing it not, with the idea of expressing myself, but I was creating. Well, I, I I understand the reluctance to use that terminology because it's often 
so linked to egoic self-aggrandizement that uh, I, I would I would I would refrain from it myself. And and, and you know that in terms of self-aggrandizement, uh, what I said a few minutes ago about this messianic uh, sim- syndrome uh, danger, I, w- I was early on aware of it in my understanding of. Uh, of what was emerging uh, in my research. By the way, I, I've never finished saying that in my dissertation, my my focus was not to uh, not to describe or or uh, or present the entirety or at all the system that I was discovering. Mm-hmm. Rather, the entire 1,000 pages were devoted to the following single aim, to show in a scholarly, indisputable way that there is this uh, second channel in the Pentateuch, that it's there. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who, after this is done, uh, is ignoring it, uh, well, it's like doing it to his own peril, because uh, because it, it's shown, I believe, in a scholarly indisputable, overwhelming way. And I've used uh, close to a dozen uh, different disciplines, uh, which, which in itself causes me pr- trouble with uh, some, some people in academia because, well, how can one, uh, you know, uh, one human being deal with a dozen disciplines, right? I mean, it's, 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 uh, I'm a suspect. But... I'm not claiming that I became an authority in those disciplines. Mm-hmm. What I've done instead, I went where I I needed help wherever I could get. Right. Whether it's anthropology, um, uh, you know, uh, literary studies, philosophy, um, uh, psychology, and you know, there's a as I say, a dozen disciplines. My specializations that I had to like people pick their uh, majors or specialization. My doctoral specialization is in religious studies and consciousness studies, um, which, which of course, is a new, a new area, and there are no departments of consciousness studies last I checked, maybe one in Arizona only. Um, but, uh, but you understand now, and, and the philosophy is a, is, is, has a part in both, uh, both uh, consciousness studies and philosophy of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, is part of that uh, uh, domain, and uh, and then of course this philosophy of religion. Uh, well, there was something, but I don't remember for that. Well, yeah, that's okay. You were you were in trouble because uh, you were um, drawing on all these disciplines. But actually, that leads me to a question specifically about the book Mysticism and Meaning, which is. Right. You're, you have you have quite a wide range of contributions. I mean, pretty remarkably a pretty remarkably wide range of contributions across um, you know di- different different styles. I mean, Stuart referred to the very personal stuff, um, uh, various different academic subjects. I guess I guess what I what I'm wondering about is how you feel about what this thing we're doing right now, which is conversation across um, 
disciplinary, ordinary disciplinary boundaries. I mean, we come from a certain tradition and then we've developed over the last almost 10 years a habit of talking to people from different traditions. You seem to have a similar, in some ways, approach. And I'm wondering if, 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 if this question resonates with you at all, if, if, if your um, multidisciplinary inclination um, could be seen metaphorically as, as a kind of set of conversations that enlighten certain subjects. Absolutely. It resonates extremely well with me. Um, you, of course, uh, have, have all heard of, of the so-called Socratic dialogue. Right. Mm -hmm. And throughout the years that I've been teaching philosophy, uh, about four or five years ago, I gave up entirely uh, lecture, having lectures hmm. uh, in my classes, but rather it, it's the students... Um, just given in advance a particular set of readings that they have to do for each class mm -hmm. and without me talking about them, about that beforehand. And mm -hmm. then we spend the entire time that we have on discussing it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I found this to be an incredibly meaningful uh, way, perhaps the only meaningful way not only of teaching, but also of me understanding the material deeper. And then I, as opposed to when I would be reading the same philosopher by myself. It's, that's interesting that you say this because uh, when I was teaching, uh, 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 not quite 20 years ago, but almost 20 years ago, uh, and after I finished my uh, dissertation, um, I had this experience of being assigned to do a lecture class, which I hated doing, and also doing uh, seminars, which I loved doing, absolutely that's loved. That's a seminar, doing. yes, that's the yeah. thing. <clears throat> yes. Approach is like a seminar. Right. Um, and what else did you say, Rob, uh, just in the previous question? There was something else just... Well, it's, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand... Oh, not yeah, just, the interdisciplinarity, I Right, think. right. Uh, yeah. Well, you see, you know, uh, some years ago I was teaching for a while at, at the university where I teach at the honors program. Um, they asked me whether uh, I can teach, and I did uh, the so-called uh, course Art of Critical Thinking. Now, mm. critical thinking is a buzzword these days, and I, I would say a bit arrogantly that most people who use the term don't, don't have the foggiest idea of what it entails. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, uh, and prior to that, I taught uh, in my philosophy department a similar, a little bit similar course, but in the art of critical thinking, they in particular wanted, because these are honor students, uh, to, to be less on, uh, on theory, more on on actual, you know, discussions. And, and at the end of it, I, 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 you know, I, I think that no teacher of any sort uh, wants to be uh, ineffective. The teachers want to be effective, right? Uh, and I was horrified to discover that, uh, that even those wonderful, uh, the best students in their 
finals, uh, they, the theory part, they brilliantly analyzed it and came to the wrong conclusions. Hmm. And only a few years later, I discovered in, in Kant's uh, prolegomena to all future metaphysics, a similar thought uh, expressed there that you can't teach uh, people, uh, in my words, I think he used the, the uh, horse sense or mother sense or something like horse, that. Horse sense. You cannot, horse sense, you cannot teach, says Kant. And he's right. And I... And I ever since I gave up uh, that particular teaching, uh, art of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And but but as I was teaching, I was I was trying to convey the following idea to the students, and uh, you know that you know in order to understand, we, you know, anything, an, an article, uh, a news piece, and so forth, you need to to know the context, right? Uh, but how much of the context? And this is what I, for myself, uh, have discovered, that actually as I was drawing on a blackboard for them, so what we are discussing, then context around, and more and more, and was going in, in, in circling wider and wider, and I said, it's endless. The context can never end, uh, because there could be, who knows what kind of interconnections that would help you to understand this in a different way, what you're looking at, you see? And, uh, and that's where uh, the reason I'm mentioning this now is with regard to your question Rob, about interdisciplinarity. Well, what are the different disciplines as, if not different contexts, different eyes looking at, at the same elephant in the room? Sure. Uh, you know, in the dark room that we are in. And we are examining uh, what is this? What is this reality? And so uh, I was just uh, going, and even now in my writing, uh, even now when I'm now I mentioned at the beginning that I'm revising and finalizing my int- introduction to the second edited volume uh, on mysticism, mysticism and experience. Um, I'm writing this introduction. Um, I'm citing not only from philosophers, but from anthropologists, psychologists, even psychoanalysts, hmm. uh, and so forth. So one, one thing I found appealing to me in the uh, book was the coda on uh, a new age for the uh, uh, mystical question mark. And this, this is by uh, Richard Jones and, and, the reason I found this interesting is that I have a academic background in physics and uh, was studied as an undergraduate at Caltech. So I, I, I got to hang out and see in action some of the top physicists in the world. And at that same time I was there, I struggled because I was also cultivating a growing interest in things mystical. And so I came away from that experience decidedly in the camp of uh, 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 Richard Jones that the scientific language and the, like the practice of physics was completely different than um, the questions of the mystical. And it was sort of my lived experience uh, and in some sense a, a degree of suffering that I found that I couldn't reconcile the two within the, the, t- the highest temple of scientific inquiry that there was. And so to me, 
I get frustrated in the modern new age uh, sort of sloppiness of thinking that tries to speak of a convergence of methodologies and a, a convergence of the scientific, you know, scientists are uh, uh, realizing what meditators knew all along, that they really represent two very different categories of inquiry and their intentions and their purposes tend to be quite different. I'm just curious, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on that, particularly that you, why you would include that in the book, particularly as a coda towards the end of the book. Well, first, I, let me just say that the the final chapter, right after that one, is by Bert Voorhees. Now, Bert is actually a physicist mm -hmm. and was a professor of mathematics. Uh, in uh, he's an American, but was uh, spent his career in Canada, and um, he even has uh, so-called Voorhees Voorhees. Uh, uh, something with regard to Einstein. Uh, All right, right. It's in his bio, in his bio. So you might want to take a look. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was on my doctoral committee, uh, Bert, and we are still very much in touch. Uh, but, but with regard to uh, Richard Jones um, and and the science, and well, the reason why it's in a coda sense. Um, Well, uh, the question of his title is, are mysticism, uh, or rather his subtitle, are mysticism and science converging? Yeah. And I believe he found it not to be so, uh, primarily because, uh, let's say, they don't speak the same language. Uh, they're coming at it differently, understand different things, and they would never find, if they continue that way, they would not find common ground. Um, on the other hand, and I don't know about science uh, and physics, let's say, but philosophy, you know, uh, are philosophy and mysticism, uh, can they find common ground the way they had at origination, you know, some... Yeah. Some early philosophers, say in Greeks, like, uh, uh, you know, they were, com you know, out and out mystics, completely. Uh, and they were also philosophizing. So, uh, but can they, and I would say much more so, in fact, one of the projects that I'm working on, my long-term project, is to develop ancient Israelite philosophy. Meaning, what do I mean by that? To bring it out, it's like there, there are books now about Aztec philosophy and Mayan philosophy. Well, if Aztecs had a philosophy, arguably it's very easy to argue that uh, ancient Israel also had a philosophy, right? Right. Um, um, and and so, but but it's it's going to be um not only very different than the what we understand in western philosophy by that term philosophy um, it might not be entirely in terms of for example the notion of being in western metaphysics has been a, a big uh, language and and even intuition like i mentioned bergson all of that takes place in ancient israelite 
thought as part of it, embedded. But one needs to bring it out, and, yeah. and I, I'm attempting to do that as well. And, and as I mentioned earlier when I quoted Bergson regarding uh, his notion of intuition, that is his intuition, philosophical <laughs> intuition. And, um, well, if they start out with unity, he says, that the intuition of unity, some sort. Well, that is the... That is what a mystic experiences of some sort or another. Different kind of different way, but that's where uh, the mystic doesn't um, uh, argues or, or, or deliberates his logically his way into the mystical state. It's the mystical state that gives him the unity uh, out of which he then has to one day try to make sense uh, when he comes out of that. Yeah. I guess in that sense that um, I think even in uh, Jones's essay, you know, he's, he's clear about where the domain of inquiry is. So if mysticism is centered on the question of being and the, you know, the, the source of being physics is, uh, typically is focused on understanding how things work. It takes for granted a exterior uh, material realm, and then it wants to understand the patterns of operation of that realm. So it seems to me that philosophy is sort of operates similarly. Philosophy is more like a set of tools that allow you to be very specific about language, as I understand it. And it seems to me quite reasonable to have a philosophy of ancient Israelite mysticism in that you're trying to explicate in language what what that was about but a philosophy of uh uh you know modal logic might not be such a ground for uh uh being able to talk about uh, uh mysticism so much that do you see what exactly. i mean and yes absolutely um I would like to mention something uh, that uh, I just recently, finally, it's uh, one of the big tasks of my life that, uh, as I see it, is that, you see, I think we all understand that when you talk about mysticism, uh, you can talk about it uh, to various degrees, but it's the experience is the all-important part, right? Yeah. And uh, I've described my experiences. Perhaps one day, maybe in different settings, uh, you would share your experiences, um, or if you have it written written in a, in a book format or papers, I would love to see that. Uh, but rem remember when I said a few minutes ago that my dissertation focused on on stating, making it obvious that there is this second channel there. Right. In fact, and this second channel, even though it has the word second, it is the reason why those, that, that text was written mm -hmm. um, and so forth. Uh, but what was it? Why didn't I write down, why don't I sit down and start writing the content the way I understand it? Even what I just said, that uh, that I'm working on the 
formulating ancient Israelite philosophy, that would be just aspect of it, the philosophical aspect. It will not be it. Mm-hmm. Why don't I write down the it? Well, you know the answer, because it's almost impossible. You can, again, then I would have to produce another allegorical coded work, which I also plan to do in, in my way, uh, and so forth. But, but guess what? So uh, one, if I want to, if I don't want to go down uh, out of this world and, 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 and as, a, as the only expert in this, I'm not saying this proudly. I'm saying it. I would like not to, that to be the mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it's for for a variety of reasons. It's it's a, it's 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 the only one, the only system that that enables one to to have access to the Mysterium Tremendum. Think about it. If you know of other such system, let me know. Now, and but but the issue is well how to transmit. Now that I received it, or at least uh, elements of it, I'm not claiming that I went through the entire initiatory way the way the priests they went through. Obviously, I cannot have it one to one, and I'm a different human being living uh, three thousand years later. But but I do possess certain uh, essential things from it, and so I, I understood that I would have to do uh, in some shape or form the way uh, when I was uh, a, you know young man in New York City when I was attending various such uh, events and possibilities that I need to do some such thing. Right. So I like spiritual retreats of sorts, and well, uh, about two weeks ago, I finally. Uh, launched a website that uh, if you'd like to, I can uh, share it with you. Yeah, we'll we'll provide a link uh, to this uh, interview. What is the website? Uh, Well, it's it's called uh, mosaickabbalah.org. It's one word. Now, mosaic, some people like it because of the notion of mosaic there, but it also primarily comes from Moses in the adjective form. Uh, In other words, Kabbalah normally is understood as a term for a medieval Jewish mysticism, mm-hmm. but because in English at least it is now almost one-to-one synonymous with Jewish mysticism, mm-hmm. um, then it is the quintessential Jewish mysticism that I'm that I've discovered. It's the foundational one, and it's very, very different from what came later and is known as Jewish mysticism. Very different. In some cases, remember what I said about the messianic thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the messianic notion which is associated with rabbinical Judaism, for example, is entirely, in my view, the way I compare the two systems, is, is 100% contrary to the, to the original ancient Israelite mysticism, which, mm-hmm. which, which, which cannot... Never tires of of uh, of of pointing out the danger of any such thing, and 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 wants to avoid it. It is entirely. In fact, my my contri- my second contribution in that volume about the God of Moses talks about uh, that as well, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, um, 
of uh, uh, the differences between it and and ancient Egypt, but also right. then rabbinical Judaism in some respects, in this respect, for example, went back to it. Uh, the divinization, you know, of the uh, of some such figure as a yeah. Messiah. So it's mosaickabbalah.org. Perfect. And uh, and I, uh, you know, I've, I've had all kinds of help, uh, including um, that is still coming, but uh, uh, Ori Soltis, who has written the book on my art, he also came out a year ago, well, now it's almost a year and a half ago, to here, to Colorado, and we've had two days of filming uh, interviews. Uh, he, he was interviewing me like you guys are doing, yeah. but... But but about uh, specifically about uh, the mosaic Kabbalah, mm. and uh, we will at some point when they will be edited, professionally filmed, uh, videoed. But also it still needs to be edited. It will be also on our website uh, later, as well as hopefully this interview. <laughs> well, good. Well, we're uh, uh, grateful to be included in that company, of course. But uh, but then there's also you've got uh, as you were con- originally conceiving it the second half of the mysticism book uh, coming out and and I guess we don't know for sure that the uh, publisher will take your t- the title that you mentioned earlier but in any event who right. is the, who is the publisher of, of oh that? it's uh, Lexington Books it's a division of Roman and Littlefield oh, okay. Okay. So Lexington Book Academic Publisher. Okay. And, and, and it already went through the anonymous review. The interesting thing is a little bit of self-criticism on my part. The reviewers found, that, found all contributions uh, excellent and so forth. The problem that the reviewer had was with my introduction, and I immediately conceded that the reviewer was 100% correct. And it gave me a chance to now to revise. <laughs> ah, and hence, and hence the project you mentioned at the beginning. Got right. it. All right. Right. Well, um, uh, one other question that we invite guests to uh, offer to listeners is to offer any way that people can contact you directly, having heard this uh, discussion. And if they have any particular questions, what, uh, how can they get in touch with you in a way that is congenial to you? Well, if they are in the academic world, then, of course, uh, I have a, a page on uh, academia.edu. Okay. But, but now they, everyone can, uh, as of two weeks ago, and there is a way to contact me through mosaickabala.org. Uh-huh. Okay, fair And enough. there is far more information there on, on some of, many of the things we talked about, including, yeah. uh, you know, little articles about it from different angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, sounds, that sounds very great. I mean, I, I feel like we uh, just scratched the surface clearly in this, uh, 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 which seemingly brief conversation, which is often the case in these kinds of uh, discussions. And so we really look forward to going deeper. And uh, uh, well, it's, I mean, uh, there's already a couple of programs that strike me. You know, obviously, when the new book comes out, when the, this next book comes out, and you also mentioned the Salties, um uh, art, the right. art book, but right. uh, and and just uh, we'll we'll take a look at the mosaickabala.org too. That will certainly uh, spark more interest because yeah. I, I think I think it's a 
what you're describing is a fascinating um, discovery and also the uh, fact that you will be engaging in uh, teaching the material in the experiential way is also very exciting. Yes. It uh, yeah. sounds a little bit like uh, reviving the Hebrew language. It's uh, <laughs> but I well, just, the, not the Hebrew language is the original Hebraic right, right. thinking <clears throat> about this, these issues. But it's, it, what the launch, it's what launched the Hebrew Jewish civilization in the first place. Yeah. Right? And it's just, just fascinating to use analysis and this, this method to unpack uh, an esoteric teaching that's hiding in plain sight. So that I exactly very very interesting. Well, well, thank you, thank you, uh, Alex, for taking the time to talk with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. And so did I. And it was a, actually an unexpected pleasure. You both are, um, you know, right on the level that I didn't even hope to have such interlocutors. Oh, well, thank and, you. That's very nice of you um, to say. And, and until next time. Yeah, well, we, we appreciate it. We look forward to future conversations. So uh, thank you again. Likewise. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Kudnick. This week on the show, we have been speaking with Alex S. Kohoff, Ph.D. Alex Kohoff is the editor of and contributor to the recently published Mysticism and Meaning, Multidisciplinary Perspectives. He is an independent scholar based in Boulder, Colorado, and an affiliate faculty member at the Department of Philosophy, Metropolitan State University of Denver. He is the founder of the Institute for Ancient Israelite Spirituality, which is a pioneering spiritual and esoteric school that teaches consciousness alteration and transformation based on ancient Israelite practices. Kohav also researches metaphysics and phenomenology of time, the self, being, and the relation between epistemology and attention. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, at the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol, we feature Medieval Heretics and Heresies, the Untold History of Western Christianity. That's with Reverend Gaetano Salomone, M.A. and Master of Divinity, author, teacher, and priest. That's Thursday, October 31st at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. This evening's talk is a survey of the many little-known individuals, groups, and movements that challenged the orthodoxy of the medieval Catholic Church. Reverend Salomone will overview the beliefs and practices of the Gnostic Cathars, lay preachers called Waldensarians, brothers and sisters of the Free Spirit, the prophecies of Joachim of Fiore, Radical Franciscans, Ascetic Flagellants, Bible-touting Lillards, and many other mystical eccentrics of the period. Most of these dissenters were persecuted for their teachings, giving rise to the papal crusades, inquisitions, and witch trials that swept across Europe for centuries. Emphasis will be on understanding the psychology and sociology of religious intolerance and its implications for today. If you are interested in the lost history of Christianity, the forgotten roots of Western traditions, and the study of sectarian groups, then this discussion will be of great interest to you. 
Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.